and welcome to the Adaptive Executive Podcast, where we meet with senior executives and discuss how to keep yourself and your organization adaptive and your employees engaged. My name is Greg Ballard, founder and owner of 5C Consultant, and I am your host. If you'd like to be considered as a guest for this podcast, you can apply on our website at 5C.Consulting. Look for the word podcast. For now, let's dive into the show. Hello and welcome to the Adaptive Executive. My name is Craig Ballard, your host. I am joined by a very special guest, Gordon Graham. Gordon, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Gordon, we talked a little bit before we came on to the to the podcast here, and I'm really fascinated by your story. Um, you've prom- you've published a book just about two years ago called The Intrepid Brotherhood, and uh, the sub The subtext is public power, corruption, and whistleblowing. And so I'd love to hear about your story and uh, your your experience in public utility as an IT professional, and what was the scenario that was going on that led you to become a whistleblower? Well, okay. Let's see how quickly I can put that in a nutshell. I, I had a 23-plus uh, uh, year career with a particular public utility, hydroelectric utility in central Washington state. Uh, during that period of time, probably about halfway through my tenure there, an individual emerged or was hired who, from the outset, made it clear that he wanted to eventually sit in the corner office. He wanted to be the CEO. He wanted to run the place. And I used to think, I used to think, okay, that's fine. Uh, as long as you, you earn it, uh, you're in the respect of others and, and whatever promotions and progress that you make in your career there is deserved. And at least there's a consensus that it's deserved. But uh, since then, I've changed my mind uh, quite a bit on that that particular subject, I don't think that anybody that comes in the door and makes it clear that they that they want to be uh, the CEO or the chief executive of that organization really deserves that because all they're expressing is a desire for power and control, and uh, it should be should be the first red flag. But that was part part of my naivete and probably everybody else's at the time. Um, he did progress just, just for, uh, through the so, so Gordon, just to make sure I get an understand, was this like day one or like in the first week, month or two uh, that he expressed his desire and intent to become the CEO of the company? Yeah, like how- yeah that's a good question because, uh, because folks that uh, embody the behaviors of, uh, of this particular individual and and want to achieve that level through unscrupulous means, they can be very seductive. And so I have to admit, it's unlikely that uh, as soon as he set, set foot in the door, he made it clear that, that he wanted to be start beating people over the head about, uh, someday I'm going to run this organization and that type of thing. I think, mm-hmm. however, fair, fairly sh- uh, soon after that, uh, it became apparent through either uh, the rumor mill or um, or him actually making statements like that that were 
were public or a lot of people knew about that he made it clear that he wanted. So yeah, uh, not, not as soon as he walked through the door, uh, that probably would have been a red flag for anybody, but he did make it apparent soon after he came there that he wanted to run the organization. And I think more importantly, the things that he started to do, um, made it apparent the, that, uh, that was his objective. Um, so anyway, he, uh, he did, uh, begin to progress. Uh, he, he was hired initially as an internal auditor, uh, I think became the chief financial officer and was, uh, a direct report to the treasurer of the organization. And all of a sudden there was this turmoil, which is part of the book, part of the story, but there was this turmoil where, the treasurer was uh, suspended, uh, put on leave without pay while the board of directors investigated his activities with uh, bond rating agencies back in places like Boston and New York. And so this was uh, the, so just this is the treasurer, not yeah. the individual you're just referring to, but the, their direct supervisor. Right. Okay. That's correct. Uh, he was eventually dismissed, and it came out afterwards that the the CFO, which is the individual that is the antagonist or the subject of my book, was uh, probably responsible for starting rumors about that particular treasurer and causing the investigation in the first place. And whether or not there was any any credible evidence that there was any kind of misconduct or uh, that created the justification for dismissal. I don't know. Uh, we mm -hmm. had, we had our doubts, but uh, the treasurer was dismissed and that uh, created the opening for this particular individual to progress to that level. And then uh, the rest of it in the book is the next steps that he, he made uh, from there to chief operating officer and then to chief executive officer. But along the way, I think the most important thing um, to recognize is that along the way, uh, you know, the dead bodies, the trail that he left, uh, the chaos that he created was pretty consistent. And it, it fits with uh, that type of of person and the behaviors that they possess and the way that they execute their management duties. It just uh, creates, uh, well, that the term that I used was chaos and that's probably the best way to describe it. Uh, they leave uh, the organization and, and their followers or non-followers, whichever way you wanna look at it, uh, in, in worse shape than they did uh, before that individual came. Um, anyway, so uh, one of the things that was occurring during that period of time was there was a lot of turmoil in the, the power and the electric power industry, uh, deregulation, um, cybersecurity, all kinds of things that uh, put responsibilities on me as the, the chief uh, business technology officer to to make sure that all of our bases were covered and that we were um, expending our resources, dedicating our resources to the best advantage of the organization. One of the things that we had realized within the department was that if we were 
integrated in the strategic planning of the organization, we could better uh, dedicate our resources and probably even control costs better by mm -hmm. making sure that uh, we were executing our duties as efficiently and effectively as possible. And so I asked to meet with uh, this CEO after hours one night uh, to make my pitch to have a, a representative at the C-suite level um, or at least somebody in the strategic planning process that knew technology and knew, uh, was aware that uh, the organizations that were actually achieving uh, the most that they possibly could with technology as a differentiator there were the ones that had integrated that function in their strategic planning process. And so he did. Let me, let me just capture the narrative because for any of our listeners. So you're, you're working with your technology division and you're recognizing, you know, Hey, we're creating stuff. We're, we're improving stuff, but we don't have any, we're, we're not in the room when they're talking strategy. And, and this is going to cost us in the long run. So let's get in the room and have someone that, can, that, that, that represents the new technology division, if you will, in the room as they're discussing strategy. And that's the conversation that you're talking about. It, it is. And uh, I guess what I should have done was uh, talked about the consequences of not doing that. And I think anybody who's been in or managed information technology as a, as a cost center, because that's the way it's viewed uh, or has been traditionally viewed, um, realizes that you have, you have many masters and it's really difficult to respond to requests from everywhere in the organization if it hasn't been planned, if it hasn't been organized, if you haven't focused on trying to address the strategic initiatives of the organization and build your resources to, to meet those objectives, then, then you are you're really responding, um, well, ad hoc, and it becomes very fragmented and difficult to do. So you're always looked at as an organization that has has failed to perform in certain respects because you're going to get squeaky wheels and people that are critical of your function simply because the planning and the recognition of, of information technology as a strategic resource is missing. It hasn't been, it hasn't happened. So uh, anyway, he met me after work and I, I made my pitch that we needed uh, representation at the table, at the planning table, in order to be able to respond to uh, those things that the board and executive management had identified as strategic goals better so that we could plan for them rather than being reactionary. And it was, it was the most phenomenal thing I think that's ever happened to me in that type of situation. He, uh, he uh, bristled and uh, completely rejected the idea. Uh, and I think maybe it was because a little bit anyway, that I had thought of it and he had not. And it, it would, would have been easy for him to take credit for it because it was just the two of us sitting there. There was nobody else at the table. And people like that are prone to do that sort of thing, take credit for, um, 
ideas and initiatives that other people come up with. So Gordon, uh, let me it, let me let me come back into this for a second because I want to make sure we're following. So uh, you had an individual come in as an auditor, internal auditor, reporting to the treasurer. The treasurer is uh, investigated and dismissed. This person, that person, moves into the treasurer role, and then is this C? Is this the, the CEO you're talking to, or is this a different individual? The same individual, I think. Okay. By this time, by this time, he was the chief operating officer in the organization, gotcha. and okay. and that had occurred uh, through some type of collusion between him and. Another individual in the community, uh, part of the story in the book talks about a executive search to find a new CEO. And at that time, this individual that I'm talking about was still the treasurer. And he talked um, somebody from the community who had been an attorney representing the utility on relicensing issues and other, other power sales issues for for quite some time, he talked him, him into applying for the chief executive officer or general manager position with the idea that they would work closely together to accomplish what they thought was in the best interest of the utility, mm -hmm. uh, or at least their own best interest. And so the board who that had initially committed to doing a national search for a new chief executive officer suddenly uh, did an about face and hired this uh, former attorney from the community who immediately mm -hmm. appointed the treasurer as the chief executive or the chief operating officer. And we learned after the fact, probably after I was gone, that part of their agreement was that uh, that lawyer, that attorney would leave and go back into private practice uh, within five years and leave the opening for the chief operating officer, the individual that is the subject of my book, to move the opening to move into the chief executive officer spot. Um, so that's the situation. When I'm talking to this guy after work about integrating technology into the strategic planning function, he is yeah. now the chief operating officer and his buddy, the, uh, the former attorney from the community is now the chief executive officer and, and pretty much a figurehead uh, because this individual that was the chief operating officer is pretty much controlling everything and running everything. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the reaction I got when I made my pitch was to say the least surprising. Uh, and he gave me some ultimatums at the time uh, that made it apparent that he wasn't going to change his perspective about information technology and how they're going to remain a cost center and have to react uh, ad hoc or on the fly to requests and if I didn't fulfill everybody's needs then um, he was going to outsource the function. So that uh, made us aware that he really had no concept of how to utilize those supplemental services by by outsourcing things that maybe we couldn't respond to what he was talking about was supplanting our whole organization with the services from 
one of the um, contacts he had in uh, Big Five Consulting, he came from the consulting industry uh, initially when he came in the door as the internal auditor. He'd had a, a fairly long career in consulting, made a lot of contacts. And I don't know if, if his default um, plan or solution for solving problems was to to outsource functions or at least look at that possibility, but we thought that probably it was a patronage deal and he was trying to create work or, or uh, find work for uh, one of his contacts in the industry that he had, mm -hmm. had main, maintained associations with. So he gave me that ultimatum and I pretty much knew from that point forward that the scarlet letter was on my forehead and there was probably nothing I could do about it. But um, in talking to my supervisors within the department, we decided, well, we're going to dedicate ourselves to doing everything we can for this company to make it successful and to make our staff members successful. And we're going to continue trying to be the best IT organization that we can. And so we went through a service management curriculum and adopted that focus. We, we went through um, information uh, technology infrastructure library processes and matured uh, most of what we did. So everything we did was standard and repeatable. And um, we did everything that we could to make it apparent to anybody that took the time to look that we were uh, a first-class IT organization. And I don't say that with any kind of bravado. I mean, it's just what we did uh, mm -hmm. because we had to do something in response to the, I guess, the, uh, the contrary focus and emphasis from, from the C-suite level. Uh, we just, we didn't get any support, credibility, and I'm not whining about that. It's just the way it was. Uh, but we still accomplished a great deal. We, we were proud of what we had done. We did everything that, uh, that approached uh, project level budget and scope. We did that through the organization's uh, project management system. Uh, so everything was public, transparent. Um, to anyway. guard, Gordon, let me cut in for a second because... Um... So just for the context of our listeners, can you, get, can you give us a little shape on the, the size and the capacity for this utility that you were in? You know, you know how, many, how many FTEs did you have in there? How many folks in IT did you have? What was the region or the, 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 the um, I don't know, population or you know, size and mass that you were serving um, that could help kind of anchor us into the, the context you're operating here? So uh, in some respects, uh, we were in a small town in central Washington, um, limited population. I think uh, residential customers probably amounted to 20, 25,000. Um, but Chelan County Public Utility District at that time was the second largest public non-federal hydroelectric utility in terms of generation and gross revenues in the nation. Um, I think between six, six and 700 employees, 
over uh, 350 million, I think, in uh, gross revenues, a lot of it from uh, wholesale power sales, which was emerging at the time uh, because electric power was being traded as, as a commodity, mm -hmm. um, surplus power. And because of the generation facilities at Chelan PUD, uh, and the fact that only a certain portion of our power was committed, uh, we had surplus power to sell on that open market. And so for a while, it was essentially unregulated. And so whatever the market would bear was what we got. Uh, and in response to that kind of freewheeling and open market, uh, the government re-regulated it to where uh, surplus power sales were, as far as the revenue goes, were limited after a few years. But for a while, it was uh, it was kind of Katie bar the door. Mm -hmm. uh, so they made a lot of money on surplus power. Um, anyway, that's that's kind of the geographical area that we covered in in central Washington was uh, relatively small compared to, I mean, if you're talking about um, a Texas utility or Duke Energy or somebody like that, <laughs> but, but still uh, because of the Columbia River and the generation resources that Chelan PUD had and has to, to today, uh, it was and is a uh, fairly large utility from that perspective. That's very helpful. So, Gordon, you know, you're, you're the title of the, the, the subtitle of the book says uh, Public Power, Corruption, and Whistleblowing. Can you bring us up to the scenario and what you saw, what you observed that led you to? Uh, to, to take on the responsibility of a whistleblower. And then I want to follow up with that with some of the things you've learned in your research after you published the book that I think can help our, our listeners um, identify toxic leadership. But, you know, maybe they'll identify subtle things in themselves uh, or identify things inside their organization and begin to, 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 to deal with it sooner than later. So what, first question, what brought you into the, the role of a whistleblower? Um, there was, uh, and this is also a big part of the story <clears throat> in the book, there's a, a central project, one of, the, one of the feathers that this particular individual, the CEO, wanted in his cap, if he ever left the organization, was, was the ability to put on his resume that he had implemented an enterprise resource management system at, at his former utility at Shalam PUD. And so he, he made it apparent that uh, he was going to, to find uh, or appoint people who would find what he considered to be the best, uh, the best technology, uh, best enterprise resource management software in order to cover as many of the functions at the utility as uh, it possibly could, um, which is fine if, you know, from my perspective, if you engage your technology professionals to, to help in that endeavor, and if you listen to them and their experience in uh, selecting the appropriate uh, scope and scale of a system 
so that you can successfully implement it. But what he did was he, he pretty much shoved us aside. He put us in the closet and he appointed people to that project team that came from areas that um, kind of defied logic. One of them was a, uh, uh, a real estate person, somebody who acquired and, and sold uh, land uh, for the utility in order to be able to do things like easements and rights of way and that type of thing. Um, another one was somebody from the communications department who was a former radio announcer. One of them was an operator from one of our hydro facilities. Um, there was virtually no technology, mature technology experience on that project team. And he wasn't looking for that. He wanted to try to make the point that anybody can run technology, anybody can implement technology. Uh, there's no, um, I guess, uh, uh, real um, mystery about it that anybody can do it. And so he tried to make that point by assembling this project team that had no experience at all. Um, he, and then he, um, he had, uh, requests for proposals submitted or, uh, published for a consultant to come in and help guide that project team. And we were fortunately involved in being able to interview and recommend, uh, candidates, uh, to fill that role and to, uh, participate in the evaluation of the candidate responses. And in the end, um, we recommended and people from other departments recommended uh, somebody from a particular organization from the Seattle area. And the CEO said, well, no, we're gonna hire this guy from down in Portland. And it turned out to be someone that he had worked with at Deloitte and Touche. <laughs> Uh, so he, so, I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, toxic leaders do regularly is that they, they show no respect or regard for established processes and procedures. And so it's, uh, it becomes a serious compliance issue. And in some cases can actually, uh, violate the law or create that situation where it at least appears that they have uh violated their own administrative instructions or policies so that was probably the first example where he did that there are some other ones i put in the book probably the biggest one is uh the selection of the actual software system for implementation against the recommendations of uh, our department and various other departments in the organization, uh, but he got what he wanted to try to implement. And it turned out um, when we knew from the outset that it was much too big, uh, much too unwieldy and uh, much too much of an undertaking for our organization, especially the project team that he had put in place. So. Uh, in short, what happened was we had uh, huge uh, contractor personnel turnover, uh, cost overruns uh, time after time after time, 
the, the project team had to go back to their steering committee, which uh, consisted of the board and several other C-suite executives to ask for more money. Uh, a $6 million project ended up costing probably in excess of 20 million uh, and took uh, two and a half times as long to implement as originally proposed. Um, and so if I can, if I can capture what you've said so far, he wanted he wanted to to achieve something in his time. And I think you said to install or to create and to set up a resource management tool uh, to to run the utility, and which is a fantastic goal, right? That's a great strategic goal. However, the way he went about it was create my own non-tech, you know, incompetent, you know, maybe competent in what they knew, but not competent in, in the needs for this particular project. And in so doing this over time, it just ended up taking cost, like I said, cost overruns uh, and, and, and an extended project timeline. Yeah, um, and within that, uh, probably a bigger issue for us as an IT department, um, the, the scope of work and the contract with uh, the implementation partner, uh, he hired or we hired a uh, consulting firm to actually help the project team with the implementation, somebody who purportedly had experience with the product that was selected. So once again, um, not a bad thing to do if, if you focus on managing that consulting partner uh, and, you know, and focus on the objectives of the scope of work and the contract in order to get it implemented. Well, what, what he had done, what his project team had done was negotiated a contract with the implementation partner where they put my department, my personnel subservient to the implementation partner. So if you just look at that on the surface, we're paying an implementation partner millions and millions of dollars to implement this software and they get to use my staff who is also or concurrently being paid by the organization to support legacy systems and other endeavors that the utility needs to have supported, they get to use them at, at the expense of the organization to perform work that is within their scope of work. So we looked at that. We looked at that and went, this, I is, this is- I'm following you here, Gordon. This is the, the this, is, biggest, this has the makings of a book, Gordon. This has the makings of a book. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it, to us, it was a huge, huge contractual issue. And so we tried to raise awareness of that with, uh, with other C-suite level um, executives, people that we thought uh, were reasonable and we could get their ear. Uh, that didn't work out too well. We tried to make the board and the steering committee aware of it, and we were chastised and punished for doing that. Well, uh, obviously, because it, it, uh, it made, uh, well, it questioned uh, the focus and uh, the, the management uh, of that project, and, and the CEO didn't want that. Um, so, Eventually, um, 
eventually we wrote a, a memo that was distributed uh, to various different places and people in the organization. So we kind of memorialized what our objections were as politely and professionally as we could. And that memo took on a life of its own and uh, created all kinds of problems for, for some of us, especially me. Uh, so that, that uh, kind of took the scarlet letter off my forehead and put the target on my back. And uh, eventually they created circumstances where they thought they could dismiss me without retribution or any kind of uh, act on my part to come back on the utility. Um, and that's the kind of the rest of the story in the book is, is how, uh, how we came back and sued for unlawful termination and eventually prevailed. Uh, so I was made whole, uh, walked away with my reputation intact and uh, uh, went on to finish my career successfully and then decided that that this whole story needed to be memorialized uh, in the institutional memory of that place so that, so that they don't forget it because things like this can easily reoccur. Somebody else could come in the door who has, who has the same kind of uh, communication skills and can pull the wool over people's eyes and is uh, charismatic to a certain degree and and yet possesses those dark characteristics that eventually emerge and, uh, and leave chaos in their wake. So let's talk about that for a second. So this, this to me, this is really intriguing. I'm, and our, a lot of our listeners know, you know, a lot of what I do, my team, and the reason we do it is I've had an opportunity, uh, as many have, to see the dark side of, of, of toxic leadership inside of organizations, um, you know, and in growing, I mean, in some ways, it's just kind of what you come up in. And it is just the, the environment in which you're said, hey, you need to succeed. It is what it is. You can't do anything about it. You've got to put the numbers on the board. So, you know, stop focusing over there and do your job. And I just believe that there's a better way. There's a better way organizations can be and so I've been really kind of, you know, um, looking, I was, I've been excited to have this conversation with you, Gordon, because I wanted to get your lens and understand what you've been seeing, you know, from your experience and in your research. G give us a little bit of a taste, uh, you know, and if you cover some of it in the book, I understand. But um, what are some of the, the key characteristics that would dis distinguish a, a toxic leader from a very passionate and genuine competent leader right because some of their behaviors are going to look very similar but i'm guessing you've gotten dialed in to see what those subtle differences are yeah so um uh the the things that i have read uh just to, to try to educate myself on why this happened and who this guy was and and what other people like him uh, are likely to do. Um, they all seem to end up uh, identifying certain traits or characteristics, behaviors, that type of thing. And there's a, there's a term 
that most of them use uh, called the dark triad. And it refers to three things that, that you can look for or should look for uh, that can probably alert you to the fact that this person may be prone to the types of behavior that we're talking about. And one of them, the first one's uh, Machiavellianism, which uh, really in short just means that to them uh, in everything, the end justifies the means. So whatever way that you can get there, they can get there is fine with them. They don't care about the consequences, collateral damage, whatever. The, the end justifies the means. Um, the second one, the second one is narcissism. And in standing by itself, narcissism isn't necessarily uh, worthy of condemnation on, on its own, it, 100%. I mean, people have to be confident, you have to know yourself, you have to, you have to know what you want. Um, and and you know if it if it does convey or betray some kind of self-interest then it's not necessarily a reason to be you know terribly concerned about an individual doing the things like we've talked about by itself but it is an indicator it's a red flag and so um those two things combined can actually be extremely detrimental to an organization if somebody is self-centered uh, uh, conveys or evidences a lot of hubris and uh, and doesn't care about how they get to or achieve something then you may be talking about the type of individual that um, you don't want to have around your organization the last one and probably mm. the ultimate and this surprised me quite a bit because there's actually there's actually books that have this in the title referring to chief executive officers. The last one's uh, psychopathy. And, and that of course is the lack of remorse or feeling for, for any collateral damage, anything that happens to anybody um, in, as a result of an action in your organization. Uh, so if you put those things together uh, like I say, they've been referred to as the dark triad in a number of different books that I've read. And it's, it's uh, kind of interesting to see that, that, uh, you know, that consistency, uh, uh, recognition, and um, just the, the observance that those things combined uh, will almost ultimately lead to a toxic leadership situation. Um, and then, you know, the things that usually happen because of that uh, are the things that, that they inflict on, on an organization um, usually leave the company and the individuals uh, that report to them in worse shape than they were when they came. Yes. So, so the dark triad, Machiavellianism, uh, Robert Greene talks a lot about that in uh, the 51 Laws of Power. Um, narcissism, I think we're all familiar with that. Narcissism, I've always considered on a continua. You know, we all have some narcissistic tendencies to us. Uh, however, there's a select portion, some portion of the population that is just on the extreme end. 
and um, and then psychopathy, you know, not connecting your actions to pain and suffering it causes to others. <clears throat> My question that comes up in this scenario, and if you could spend a minute, Gordon, and I'm, I'm watching our time here, but where was the board in all of this? And what did they miss uh, from your perspective? Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in their defense, um, we talked a little bit before about the size of the utility and how it's kind of funny that an organization like that um, with the generation resources that they had, the revenue that they generated, their, their wholesale power function actually existed in in such a small and um, I guess sparsely populated to some degree uh, area of um, you know the Northwest in in rural Washington State. So the people that get elected to the board are always local. Uh, the local area has a history of uh, of orcharding of raising apples. Uh, a lot of them came from from that area. Uh, there's uh, educators that have been represented on the board, but they're all local. And as a lot of industries that evolved in that area, um, you know, it was, it was always kind of the good old boy uh, type of evolution. Uh, people that ran the organization usually went to school together uh, during their entire uh, scholastic careers in the valley. Uh, they uh, went to church together, whatever. Uh, we're on, uh, you know, uh, committees, uh, community activities, social activities. So um, they are, and we used to refer to them this way sometimes, uh, the good old boys. And that's not gender specific because there were you know, females on the board, but they came from that type of environment. And so it, to some degree, they were easily seduced by somebody like this individual we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and they wanted to believe, I mean, you want to, you want to believe that people are honest, right? Especially somebody you put in, in control of your organization and, you know, 600 employees, you want them to be honest. And so you want to believe them. And they did uh, to a fault. So even when we tried to put things in front of them that showed, uh, you know, this is not the way to do this. Uh, there may be a better way. Let's get the dialogue going. Um, and they they refused uh, actually to to step in. Uh, not one of them was uh, at all courageous at the time not until uh, things started to be revealed from his other activities uh, regarding projects or initiatives uh, in the utility did any kind of resistance emerge. Um, and, and then it started to snowball. There were uh, critics in the community that started appearing at public meetings and actually getting very vocal there were multiple uh, alternative or reform candidates that emerged for uh, the board of commissioners. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was terminated, there were two of them that had uh, expressed uh, dismay at 
uh, the CEO's decisions regarding the software project that we were working on and actually came out and condemned him for, for initiating uh, my dismissal. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't say they, they vowed a revenge or anything like that, but they wanted to get elected so they could change a number of different things like, like the whistleblower uh, function or policy at the organization was actually um, more of, uh, it was developed to be able to check off the box and say, well, we've got this policy so in order to get state regulators off of, off of their backs. And they made sure and retained control of the whole thing, the initial review of whistleblower petitions and the ultimate decision whether or not they met the criteria for submission was controlled by the, the uh, uh, internal legal counsel. And she was in the pocket of the CEO. So uh, they criticized that policy extensively and vowed that they would change that if and when they got elected. And uh, just uh, to, to kind of wrap things up there, as far as his experience at the utility, I was dismissed, I think, in July of 2004, and he was gone by October of 2006, no, 2005. Mm. So, so barely, uh, what, 14, 15 months after I was gone. Uh, so he was already seeing the writing on the wall with the uh, reform commissioners uh, and the dissatisfaction in the community uh, and some of the things that he had done at the utility had caused um, budget con constraints or budget problems uh, that they had to deal with for years after he left. Um, so he, he decided he was gonna try to leave as quickly as possible. So yeah, that was the next question I wanted to ask is how long was he in role? Uh, so, so he was out in 2006. When did he come in? How long did he, how long was he in, in the organization? How long was he operating as CEO? So I think he was there for almost, uh, what, 13 years. Uh, and I think he was CEO for close to five uh, four or five years, uh, probably five by the time he left in 2005. Um, yeah. And then he went down to a, a, uh, large, uh, utility district in Southern California where they not only had power generation, but they traded in gas futures and, uh, they had an uh, irrigation function, so they managed water resources. And shortly after he got there, the gas trading function, the power traders uh, at the organization uh, issued uh, or made a, a huge uh, purchase of gas futures, betting on the come, so to speak, and it, uh, the price tanked and they lost uh, tens of millions of dollars. 
And it was significant enough to where the board felt like they had to do something. And even though many of them, some of them anyway, expressed uh, the opinion that the manager didn't have much to do with that power trade, he was where the buck stopped, so to speak. And they really didn't have any other choice than to dismiss him. So I think he was there for less than 13 months or something. And they had to, anyway, they dismissed him because of that, that gas futures trade that went south. So it's a phenomenal story, and it's all detailed out and captured in the book, uh, The Intrepid Brotherhood, Public Power Corruption and Whistleblowing. And uh, I'm assuming folks can find that online on Amazon. I think you have intrepidbrotherhood.com and they can get a copy of their book. I'm curious though, Gordon, um, I have a theory on this, but I wanna maybe discuss it for a minute before we wrap up. What do you think is the reason why we still have toxic leaders uh, like this gentleman and like others? And, and maybe this, this gentleman is maybe an extreme, um, but there are still people that are leading in un- unhealthy ways and it's creating a tremendous amount of um, not just cost, um, but delays uh, for the business as well as stress and health issues for the organization, for the people in the organization. Are you, do you have a, a running theory on, on why this is still occurring in, in the 21st century? Well, I, I've been enlightened on that uh, because I wondered the same thing. And most of the things that I have read uh, recently talk about how in order to reduce Uh, those instances in order to filter those people out, so to speak, that we need to change our major systems related to the process of hiring and evaluating and and just giving power and control to people. Uh, Human resources can and probably should play a huge role in that function or or that, uh, that endeavor um, and it just, you know, not necessarily, it's not rocket science stuff. Like if, if human resources professionals made themselves aware of what to watch for, like if somebody comes in and, and all they can talk about is themselves and what they want to achieve, uh, you probably want to dig deeper and ask them, well, in your former roles, what have you accomplished for your team? What have you Mm -hmm. accomplished for the people who work for you? What's your approach to to building that type of organizational uh, success? Uh, And if all they can talk about is is what they've done individually um, for themselves and what they want to accomplish then Maybe that, that's not the type of person you want running your organization. Uh, in addition to that, the, uh, the systems that we have for evaluation probably, probably need to be changed. Um, like, you know, board members who have responsibility for uh, evaluating chief executive officers, perhaps they need to include feedback from uh, elsewhere in the organization. Uh, What is it about 
our organization and maybe this individual in particular that that you like you support and on the other on the other side of the coin what do you think uh this individual uh may need to improve upon and uh that type of feedback maybe can give board members at least a clue that that what they may have uh, in control of their organization is an individual who doesn't have the best interests of everybody in mind. That's kind of too late at that point because um, most of what I've read is pretty firm. Uh, all these authors are pretty firm in their observation that, that these individuals can't be changed. You can't fix a toxic leader and they can't fix themselves. They have those behaviors and they're, they're going to have them forever. Um, you may be able to, to uh, you know, achieve some nuanced improvement or change, but to the largest degree, you can't fix that. And uh, so I think, I think the prevention is probably the thing to concentrate on. And, and that's why I really, really believe that, um, you know, like MBA uh, curriculums, need to have some element in them uh, of, um, you know, the concentrating on the ability to recognize those behaviors. And even in yourself, I mean, if you're an MBA student and a professor says, you know, asks revealing questions and then provides the feedback that says, well, you know, I, I don't think you should be leading people. <laughs> then uh, maybe you've just uh, prevented a situation like I had to go through from happening. I don't know. But if you could start there and, you know, use uh, case studies like my book or something and, and make people aware that, uh, you know, if, if you want to be an executive, if you, if you want to be a leader uh, in any organization, if you want to lead people, you should concentrate on, on embracing the things that are promoted by servant leadership and the inspirational leader and things like that. Uh, but if you believe this other way, if you think you have to control everything, then, then maybe you just need to go be self-employed or something, but don't manage people. <laughs> Yeah, fascinating story, uh, Gordon, and I uh, appreciate you sharing it. I appreciate, you know, obviously, I'm sure there is a, there's another whole conversation and, you know, what triggered in you to, to decide to stand up, right, and to, you know, put your neck on the line um, and, and everything that went around that, which might be good for another podcast sometime. Um, because if, if people are listening and, and they find themselves, hey, I'm in this environment, this is the reality I'm in, you know, when do they make that decision? You know, and, and obviously there's ethical and legal things that need to be considered. But um, I really want to appreciate you coming to the show and sharing your story. Uh, if folks want to reach out to you or, or find you, where should they go? Probably the best place is uh, on the website. Uh, they can, there's an email list out there. They can subscribe to my blog posts. Um, and that's probably the best way to get in contact with me. They can provide feedback out there. I'm on LinkedIn, um, just under my name, uh, 
so that's another possibility. Um, right. Yeah, I I have a I have a Facebook business page, but I rarely put anything out there. Uh, only when I've got like ebook sale promotions or something. Uh, yeah, those are probably the two best ways. Fantastic. So your website, uh, intrepidbrotherhood.com, where you can register for blog posts and you can access the book and then also on LinkedIn. We'll put those into the show notes. Uh, so again, uh, Gordon, thank you again for joining us here on the Adaptive Executive. We're, we're glad to have you today. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Adaptive Executive Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on LinkedIn and by subscribing to our mailing list. Again, my name is Greg Ballard and thank you for listening.